Welcome to the weekend message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. I'm a little sore today, too. Um, I wasn't over helping you with the tree. You probably didn't see me there. Yeah. But I played basketball yesterday morning, and it's like, I think my effort to try and stay young. And uh, so we played and played, and then there's a bunch of young guys. So we get done. I'm like, I am totally done. And they go, just one more game, just one more game. I'm like, I can do that. So anyway, I got done, drove home, got out of my car, could barely get out of my car, was, was holding a basketball. And some guy that was about my age uh, rode by on a bicycle, and he looked at me, and he said, you're too old for that. So I pushed him off the bike, but anyway. All right, we're going to talk today about a topic that uh, you're very familiar with, and I'll introduce it this way. When I was in elementary school, my mom would get us stuff for our lunches, and it was up to my brother and me to pack our lunches. And we would always have various things, but there would always be a dessert. And for years, our dessert were Hostess Ding Dongs. Do you remember Hostess Ding Dongs? Yes. Now, just real quick, vote. How many of you would uh, say Hostess Ding Dongs are the best dessert or Hostess Ho-Hos? We're just going to have a vote very quickly, okay? How many of you are on the Ding Dong side? All right, how many on the Ho-Ho side? No way. Come on. Ding Dongs were the best. Anyway, those came 12 to a pack, and anyone could figure out that we had five days of school every week, and there was two of us, so ten were sort of relegated to lunches, which meant there were two extras. And that meant my brother and I each got one extra we could have after school or whatever. But there was something about those ding-dongs that was so alluring. So much pulled me in toward them, and my brother too. And so my mom would just very clearly say, you know what, you've got 12. If you eat all 12 on Monday, you will have none for the rest of the week. And uh, both Joel and I would sort of figure out, well, I can handle uh, you know, eating some extra at the beginning because all that will mean is that my brother won't have any at the end of the week. That was sort of the way we rationalized. And so I remember sneaking out on the back porch and eating Joel's portion of the ding-dongs. Anyway. Uh, It brings up something that uh, that's the first memory I have of a real significant temptation in my life. I probably had other ones. It's just the first one that I remember. And temptation is an interesting thing because it's part of the human experience, right? We all face temptation. And temptation is simply doing something, saying something, thinking something that is alluring on the front end, but you know that it's going to create harm on the back end. It's going to create some kind of damage. That's what a temptation is. It looks real good on the front end. It pulls you in. But you know that in the end, it's probably not the best thing. And our temptations can be, depending on what they are and how we handle them, they can sometimes be funny. Like, I was not feeling uncomfortable at all sharing that failure or that fall in temptation with you. It's just sort of a funny one. But I could share with you, though I'm not going to, ones that have really embarrassed me. And I could share ones with you that have been super annoying to me and super annoying to others. And there are also those that actually undo a life. I mean, just wipe somebody out or wipe out a bunch of people. And so temptations can go from sort of laugh at them to they destroy your life. And we're going to talk about them today. 
We're in the book of Matthew, and we're going to be in the book of Matthew for a while. We're going from Jesus' birth at Christmas to his death and resurrection at Easter time. There's like five months in there, and so we're sort of plowing through the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew chapter 4, and you can turn there and put your finger in it because we're actually going to look at something else because this is the story of Jesus' temptation. Believe it or not, he was tempted. But to understand it, we have to look at a story in the Old Testament. And so if you have two fingers, uh, you know, put one in Matthew 4 if you want, and then turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 8, okay? Deuteronomy chapter 8, because you actually cannot totally understand what happens in Matthew 4 without understanding this story in the Old Testament. Let me just set up what's happening in Deuteronomy. The children of Israel have come out of Egypt, okay, the Exodus. They have been freed from Egyptian slavery. They have come out to Egypt. They decided not to go into the promised land when it's first offered by God. And so what happens to them? They wander for 40 years. And now that 40 years is over. A whole generation has died. A whole new generation has been raised up. They stand on the edge of the promised land again. And Moses is going to say, listen, before we go into the promised land, Let's recall some of the lessons we've learned so that we don't repeat them when we get into the promised land. And Deuteronomy is basically a book. It it's, uh, literally means the second time the law is given. It's just a rehearsal of the things that we've learned. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6 through 8, Moses peels out some of the real specific lessons that the people learned while they were wandering in the wilderness. And so... Uh, Deuteronomy 8, starting in verse 1, will sort of help you understand this. Uh, We'll bring it up onto the screen. And it says this, Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Then remember, this is a time of reflecting back, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now, let me just um, have you consider a couple things. First thing, wilderness. The wilderness, obviously, was not a great experience for them. And if you've ever seen pictures of where they wandered around, I mean, it was as desolate as can be. I mean, think of central California, you know, 20 miles off of I-5, and you'd start to get a feeling of, man, that is a pretty crummy place to be. Now magnify that by 100, and you're in the wilderness that they walked around in for 40 years. It was a crummy place to be. Most of the time, uh, wilderness in the Bible, when it talks about wilderness, most of the time it talks about it symbolically, and it symbolically means a really difficult time, a really hard circumstance, sort of plowing through something where, quote-unquote, I'm in the wilderness. Now, the thing that's interesting here is it says that God led them into the wilderness. And that sort of runs counterintuitive to us, right? We think, well, God loves me and God wants to bless me. And when God is pleased with me, everything should run really, really well. And yet here what we see is that it was part of God's plan actually to have them go into the wilderness, that there were certain things he wanted to teach them, certain ways that he wanted to mold their character. And so he leads them into the wilderness. And it's just an interesting thing for us to think. If you're going through a really difficult time and you're asking the question, you know, is it because God hates me? Is it because God's turned his back on me? Is it because I've displeased him? Is it because I don't have enough faith? Uh, Now, 
those could be, uh, the idea of not having enough faith, that could be true. But it could also be true that God says, no, I love you totally. I just need you to go through this experience. I can't teach you what I want to teach you without going through this experience. So anyway, he leads them into the wilderness. And the purpose here, it says, is to humble them so that they understand that they can't make it on their own and to test them to see if they will still follow him even in really difficult circumstances. And that's still the case for us. When you're going through a hard time, there's two things that God's teaching you. One is to humble you. You can't make it on your own. You need God. And to test you. Will you follow God? Will you follow God even when it's really difficult? So then Moses, he sort of gives this as the summary statement on the beginning. And then he's going to start giving examples of lessons that were learned in the wilderness. Okay, so the first one uh, harkens back. Harkens. I think I'm still in the Christmas spirit, right? Hark the herald angels sing. It goes back to a story that happened in Exodus. And just to now refresh you really specifically on what happens, as you recall, children of Israel are stuck in Egypt. They are slaves. They've been there for 400 years. They are under the oppression of the mightiest nation in the world, Egypt at the time. And then God, through a series of incredible miracles, the plagues, basically prize Egyptian hands off the slaves, and they get out of Egypt. And they walk and walk and walk and walk, and then they get caught at the Red Sea, where they're sort of cornered, and the Red Sea is in front of them, and Egyptian soldiers, the whole army is coming down on them, behind them. And then God does another incredible miracle, and he parts the Red Sea, and they walk through, and then just as the Egyptian army is starting to go through the Red Sea, God closes it up. The whole army is wiped out. They are truly free at this point. As you recall, too, God guides them. By day, he guides them by a pillar of clouds, and by night, a pillar of Fire every single moment, they visually see God's presence. Okay, so that's the setting. In fact, just so that you know, in the Old Testament, there is no group of people that see God's miraculous work more evident than these people. God displays himself in his glory, his power, his might. Visually, there is no way they could miss God's presence in these few weeks where all these things happen. So they get into the wilderness, and this is literally just a few days after the Red Sea experience. This is literally as they are looking at the pillar of cloud or the pillar of fire, and they start to complain. And they look around, and they notice that their provisions are getting low, and they say, oh my gosh, we're going to starve. We've got no food. What are we going to do? And it's almost like God is saying, hello, hello, have you not seen what's happened over the last few weeks? Do you think I just brought you out here to kill you? Do you think after everything I've done that I can't figure out a way to feed you? Is that what you think? And so he comes up with this great plan. He says, every morning when you wake up, there's going to be bread all over the ground called manna, and there's going to be enough for the day, and you can count on it. And so Moses is looking back on this story, and he says, uh, basically, he says, he humbled you, God humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, 
which neither you nor your ancestors had known, you'd never heard of manna before, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so here's the first lesson that Moses is giving. He's saying, now recall this, as you go into the promised land, you've got to remember this, don't ignore God. When things come up, when problems come up, when you're traveling through your life, don't act as if God's not there because he is there and he's paying attention and he'll care for you. You need to remember that. Don't ignore God. It is not up to you to figure out and to make your life happen. God is in this with you. Don't ignore him. So that's kind of the first lesson that Moses says. When we go into the promised land, don't ignore God. He's with you. He's going to help you. He's going he's to bring you through things. You are partnering with him. First lesson. Then it moves on to the next story. It's in the very next uh, chapter of Exodus, Exodus 17. They come to a place called Rephidim, and Rephidim is a place, uh, apparently, that there was probably some water, but for some reason, they couldn't get to it. The people couldn't get to it. So not worrying about bread anymore, because they're getting bread every day. They say, but what about water? God, what about water? And so they start complaining. They get so upset that they say, we're going to kill Moses, go back to Egypt, and become slaves again. That's how concerned we are, God, that you're not going to take care of this. And they basically say say this to God. If you really loved us, if you were really trustworthy, if you cared for us, you would give us water. And it's sort of like, um, I, I picture this. You know, a daughter coming up to her father and saying, Daddy, if you love me, you buy me a horse. Now, I've never had a daughter say that. Right, Nikki? I have had a daughter say, Daddy, if you love me, you would buy me a car. But that's another story, all right? But here's the point. Here's the point. Is this particular thing, the way that this happens, is... uh, They are basically testing God. They're saying, God, if you're really good, if you're really who you claim to be, if you're really as committed to us as you say you are, then you will certainly do this. And you see this really sort of ironic twist to how the relationship between us and a holy, sovereign, creator, God of the universe should work. It's like, God, jump through my hoop just to show everybody that you do love me. Just jump through my hoop. Serve me. Serve me. And Moses looks at this. And he says, so here's the lesson learned. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did, excuse me, at Massah. And you say, Massah, I thought it was Rephidim. It was Rephidim, and Moses renamed it Massah, because you know what Massah means? Testing. They put God on trial. They said, we're going to see, God, if you're really up to the job. And Moses looks at that, and he goes, boy, big mistake. Don't do it. Second lesson learned. Don't question God and his motives. Don't put God to the test. Don't put him in a position where you're saying, you better prove yourself to me. So then we move to the final story that Moses is going to bring up and bring a lesson out of, and it maybe is one of the most famous out of Exodus. It's the story of the golden calf, and if you're not familiar with that story, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. He's up there for 40 days, and he's getting the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, the people become restless and anxious, And they start saying, we need to go back to Egypt. Well, that's not going to happen. So they said, well, we need to make our own God. And so they talk Aaron, Moses' brother, into making them a golden calf to worship. And here's sort of what they're thinking. They're saying, you know, this God 
that Moses talks to, this God that shakes Mount Sinai, this God that is, you know, sort of huge and powerful and a little ominous, he scares us. And besides that, he has expectations for us. He expects us to do certain things. Some of them are really hard. Why don't we just make our own God? And then we can make that God work exactly the way that we want him to. We can just move him and manipulate him and mold him and make him in our image and do things so that we're really comfortable with this God. So they talk Aaron into making this golden calf. And according to this God, they are welcome to party. And it says that while Moses is gone, they start partying so loudly and in such a rapturous, crazy, you know, sort of wicked way that God and Moses actually hear them up on the mountain. And Moses is like, what is that? And God says, you better go back down. It was the beginning of the famous video series, Israelites Gone Wild. And they were going wild, man. It was a crazy time. And so Moses comes down, and it ends very badly for the people that have chosen this God over the real God. And if you know the story, they have to eat uh, gold dust tea. Uh, the, The calf is shaved down into dust, put into water, and Moses makes them drink it. Mmm, so good. And then a bunch of them die as well. And so Moses brings out his third lesson. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only, and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you. Third lesson, don't replace God. It is so tempting to make God into your image, to make a God that you say, he's so much easier. He sort of fits into my picture. He allows me to do what I want to do. And Moses is saying, when you enter the promised land, don't do that. Don't replace God. Your life comes from connecting to the true, real, living God. Don't replace him. And that's the third lesson. And so Moses says to his people, as they enter into the promised land, because he's not going to go, he says, so three lessons to learn. First one, don't ignore God. The second one is don't test God. And the third one is don't replace God. You will be tempted to do all three. And in fact, when you look at the rest of the story of the Old Testament, Israel basically fails in all three, over and over and over again. They fall into those temptations. They fall apart. They pull away from God. They test God. They ignore God. They choose other gods instead. All of that, now we're ready to look at Matthew chapter 4. Okay, so turn over to Matthew chapter 4, and believe it or not, what we've looked at becomes very important in what we see Jesus doing. Now, if you were here last week, Lowe taught, and he taught about the baptism of Jesus. This had to have been a highlight in Jesus' life. He comes, and John the Baptist, who is sort of a celebrity in Israel at this point, his cousin. But John the Baptist is getting a lot of notoriety. A lot of people are coming out. What John is saying, people are listening to. John looks at Jesus and he says, that's the Messiah. Kind of a cool thing to have said by somebody who's powerful. That's the Messiah. But it gets outdone because in just a few minutes, as Jesus is baptized and comes out of the water, he gets the endorsement from somebody else. This huge voice comes out of heaven. I assume it was huge. I don't know. I just picture it was a big, booming voice. It was God's voice. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And you just have to look at this and say, this was a good day for Jesus, right? I mean, that's a pretty cool thing to have those things happen back to back. And if you've ever had a really good stretch in your life or a really great day, maybe you're sort of like me. You're a little cynical and you think, this can't last. 
And if Jesus thought this can't last, he was right, because you turn to chapter 4, and you get a new story that comes up, and it is not one of these high as a mountaintop stories. We read that then Jesus, in chapter 4, if you've got it, says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, question, do you see anything similar to this as we just saw with the Israelites? Yes, right? All right, so let me just ask, do you see anything similar between what happened to Jesus and what happened to the Israelites? Yes, because they went to the wilderness, and Jesus went to the wilderness, and God guided them to the wilderness, and here the Spirit guides them to the wilderness. And you see 40, now it's not 40 day, I mean 40 years, but it's 40 days and 40 nights. That is not coincidental. There is clearly an attempt here by Matthew, because remember this, Matthew is a Jewish writer, writing for a Jewish audience. He is going to use the Old Testament to show who Jesus is. This is not coincidental that Matthew puts it in this way so that Jews who are familiar with the Old Testament, the Exodus story, will say, wait a second, I've heard this before. And that's exactly right. They have heard it before. So Jesus is led by God into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, And he is tempted by the devil. And I'm not going to spend time on it right now, but let me just say this. The Bible teaches in a real devil. Now, if you have a hard time with that, that's okay. I'm just saying that the Bible assumes that the devil is a real character that really, you know, exists. And that's what's happening here. And what's going to happen in this story is it's like this showdown in the desert, this showdown in the wilderness. Uh, when I, I loved Westerns when I was growing up. And, uh, you know, there was all kinds of people that were, had this reputation of being, you know, quick on the draw and all those kinds of things. And so here's what I want you to picture. I want you to picture this desolate, you know, desert outside of town, outside of Dodge City, and you get the two most infamous quick draw, maybe outlaws that there are. You know, you get Jesse James and you get the Sundance Kid. That's my favorite, Sundance Kid. And so you get Jesse James and Sundance Kid, and they're out of town, and nobody's there, and they say, once and for all, we're going to figure out who's got the quickest draw. And they're going to have a showdown, and nobody is there to see it. And you've got these two mammoth, you know, great gunslingers, and they're going to take each other on. And in a sense, that's what happens out here. In fact, this is really interesting. How do you think Matthew and the disciples found out about this story? Let's think about that for a second. Do you think Satan told them? Probably not. That means there was only one other person who told them. Jesus. Jesus said, you need to know this story. Even though nobody was around, you need to know this story. Now, there's one other thing that happens, and I love this quote from a guy named Philip Yancey. He says, like single combat warriors, two giants of the cosmos converged on a scene of desolation. One beginning his mission in enemy territory, this is Jesus, weakened by 40 days without food. The other confident and on home turf, seizing the initiative. So this is like Jesse James against the Sundance Kid, but the Sundance Kid doesn't have a gun. And so that's sort of the setup. It looks like Satan's just going to take Jesus apart. Jesus is weakened and all this kind of thing. And so there's this huge showdown that nobody sees, 
But you know what's so interesting? This had a huge impact on the rest of history, what happens just during this period of time. So uh, basically it says, the tempter came to him, the devil came to Jesus, and he said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You're hungry, you're in the wilderness, there's no obvious way for you to be fed. Tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so here's the first temptation, and it seems so totally innocent. Satan comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, you're hungry? You're God? You're supernatural? You can do miracles? In a little while, you're going to turn water into wine? In a little while, you're going to turn you know, a few loaves of bread and a few fish into a meal for thousands of people? This is not hard for you. Just take care of this yourself. You can do it. You don't need any help. You can just take care of this. It seems so innocent. And yet Jesus immediately looks at what Satan is doing and realizes this is not just an offer to take care of a need. This is a temptation to say, I can do this without God's help. I do not need God the Father to help me in this circumstance because I've got the power to make this happen, and I'll do it without him. And because Jesus is so familiar with Moses' lessons, because he studied the Old Testament, he probably had memorized the Old Testament, because he's so familiar with it, he immediately sees the temptation for what it is, a temptation to ignore God, and he repeats then exactly the lesson that Moses taught him. Isn't that so interesting? He says, men shall not live on bread alone. Men shall not just figure out the way to take care of their own things on their own but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. They'll depend on God. That's the solution. That's the way that this needs to to be handled. And so finally, Jesus says, I won't ignore him. I'm not going to ignore God. I'm not going to do this without... God knows that I'm hungry, and God will take care of that. I don't need to take matters into my own hand. I don't need to act as if God's not here. And so he passes that first test. So Satan moves on to the next test. He takes him on a little road trip. And this road trip is to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. So somehow, miraculously, they are transported to the highest point on the temple, it says. We know that the highest point on the temple was about 450 feet above the valley that was right next to it. So it's fairly high at this point. And Satan tries to pull a Jesus. He goes, well, if you're going to quote scripture, I'm going to quote scripture. And he goes to Psalm uh, verse 91, or chapter 91, verses 11 through 12. And that's what we have here. So it says that the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels. This is Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And it looks like Satan's just bringing out a scripture that says, listen, you can claim the scripture and God will have to follow through. But like everything else, Satan has twisted it because this psalm is basically saying when God calls you to do something, when God asks you to do something, when God sort of puts you into motion and it looks scary or it looks like you might get hurt, you don't need to worry because if God's called you to do it, if he's commanded you to do it, he will also protect you. That's what Psalm 91 is teaching. So let me just ask you this question. Had God called Jesus to jump off the temple? Yes or no? No. Who, in fact, had done that? Satan. 
You see, this wasn't one of the instances where God says, listen, if I ask you to do something, I will protect you. I'll bring you through it. This is a time where Satan is saying, why don't you just put God to the test and see if he really loves you? See if he really will care for you. Let's just check this out. And again, because Jesus is so familiar with Moses' teachings, Jesus says, "Uh, I see what you're trying to do. This is not a good thing. You want me to test God. And so Jesus responds with Moses' second lesson learned. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Don't manipulate God. Don't push him into a corner and say, prove to me that you love me. And if you love me, you'll do this one thing for me. So Satan moves on to the next temptation because Jesus again has passed. He transports him to another place. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And we're not sure what mountain we're talking about here. There, of course, is no mountain where you can see all the kingdoms of the world. So it's either a supernatural mountain where they're sort of, you know, it's sort of a Star Wars kind of a matrix thing, and you're looking at something that nobody else could see, or it's just a mountain where you saw a bunch of kingdoms nearby. Whatever it is, Satan's getting his message through, and now here's what's happening. Satan's failed on the first two temptations. He's starting to get nervous now, and he's starting to say, he, whereas he's being kind of subtle up to this point, he's trying to sort of trick Jesus into something. There's no trickery here. Now he's desperate. Now he says, worship me, follow me. You know, he's sort of crumbling. But he makes probably his most powerful uh, pitch to make Jesus disobey. Because here's really what he's saying. Think about this. Jesus ruled all the kingdoms before he came to earth, because he's God. And he knew that after his time on earth, he would rule all the kingdoms again. So Satan is really not offering him anything. Jesus is already going to get what Satan wants to give. But Satan is saying, God's way is going to require you to go to the cross. My way doesn't. You don't need to be humiliated. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to die. You don't need to pay the penalty of sin. You don't need to go to hell in somebody else's place. If you will do it my way, I'll give you all the kingdoms, and you can skip all the dirty work. You can skip everything that's hard. You get all the glory and none of the suffering if you will do it my way. And this is probably the most intriguing, the most enticing. We read Jesus as he goes through, and he's not some robot deity that just everything bounces off of him, and he's never, like, worried or troubled or little, you know, about things that are happening. We see in Jesus that he's a real person. And this whole idea of suffering and dying the way that he's going to die really troubles him. And Satan's giving him a way out. But Jesus, again, uh, looks at it. And he says, Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. And we see all the way through this that Jesus knew the lessons that Moses had taught the people. And he uses them here because just as those people had been tempted 2,000 years earlier, Jesus was being tempted, and he uses God's word to push the devil off. 
He sees the temptations for what they are, and he pushes them off. And it says that Satan finally leaves. Now, here's what I want to do. In our remaining time, let me give you two applications, I think, to this whole thing, because this is actually very relevant for us. Here's the first question. Do you think, do you think Jesus was really tempted? In other words, do you think that there was something compelling in Jesus to actually disobey God through this process? Don't raise your hand, um, because I think absolutely the question is yes. Abs- that's the point of the story. He was really tempted. This was not just some charade he went through to say, oh, yeah, I can relate to everybody else, but it didn't even faze me. No way. This was really a temptation for him. And, in fact, we see that Jesus is tempted over and over again. This happens at the beginning of his ministry. Do you remember the story when Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says, this is a little bit before he's going to be captured and crucified, and he says, the Son of Man, the Son of God, is going to uh, suffer and die. And Peter looks at him, and he says, no, no, you're not going to suffer and die. And remember what Jesus says to Peter at that point? He says, get behind me, Satan. So interesting. And you go, how obscure is that? Man, what a rip on Peter. It's not a rip on Peter. Do you know what's happening? Is Satan is using Peter to give the exact same temptation that he had given before. Jesus, there is a way for you to get all the glory and none of the suffering. And he used Peter to to express it again. And Jesus sees right through it. It's an invitation from Satan to worship Satan and bypass the cross. And that's why he says, get behind me, Satan. I see what you're doing. You're using my best friend in the world to try and tempt me again. We see that Jesus, when he's on the cross and the thief is next to him, and do you remember the line that the thief says? He says, if you're really the son of God, if you're really who you claim to be, save yourself and save us. You've got the power. You don't need God the Father to help you with this. You could just snap your fingers and you'd have a whole host of angels here to just protect you. Just do it. You don't need God. It's the temptation of ignoring God and taking care of things of yourself, and and Jesus doesn't do it. And then finally, while he's on the cross, the spectators at the cross said, you know, if God really loved him, he'd bring him down from there. He could save him. If God really did, it's the test, testing God. Do you really love me? Bring me off this cross. So you see that these temptations come back again and again and again. They were real. And the question is, why does Jesus tell us this story about the desert? Why do we see Jesus in such a weakened state? Why do we see temptations that actually are having a pull on him? It's because he could come as the Messiah in two ways. He could come as the conquering king, as the one that nothing phases. He's on the white horse. Everyone bows down. He uses his powers to overwhelm us and, and uh, you know, sort of push us away. And Jesus says, that's not the Messiah I'm going to be. I'm going to be a Messiah that can relate to you. I'm going to be the Messiah who empathizes with you. In Hebrews 4.15, read this with me. Let's read this out loud. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus said, I'm coming as the Messiah. That when you pray to me, when you're in trouble, when you're having a hard time, when you're on the edge of falling to temptation, maybe you've already fallen. You're not just going to have a God that says, okay, 
you know, I won't ground you into dust. I won't destroy you with lightning. I'll give you another chance. That's not what we have. We have a Messiah that says, I know how you feel. We have a Messiah that says, me too. Me too. I know exactly what that's like. And isn't that a great thing to know? Because we are frail. We are very human. In 2011, you are going to fail at times. And you just need to know you've got a God who loves you and can empathize with you. You never have to hide. Here's the second thing to learn. These temptations are our temptations. These are temptations we deal with as well. I look at, you know, the first one, ignoring God. How often do I ignore God through my life? In fact, I'm feeling, I was sharing with some guys on Thursday morning, I'm feeling very convicted about this in my own life right now. Of I believe in God, you know, I work for God, all those sorts of things. In some ways, I'm a practical atheist. So much of my life, I just handle on my own. I don't even think to bring God into it. I don't think about partnering. I think, you know what, I can handle most of this. And God says, but I want to partner with you in all of it. I go, no, I don't need you in all of it. Now, there are a few times I need you, God, and I'll call on you then. But most of the time, I've got it. And God's saying, man, you're doing just what the children of Israel did. You're doing just what Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to do. Don't ignore me. Don't ignore me. We can partner together. Maybe you do that. How easy is it for me to sort of test God, to use God for my own ends, to say, God, I don't want to serve you. I want you to serve me. I want you to come through for me. And I find myself doing that at times. I feel myself entitled. God, you owe me. You owe me. Hi, I do your work for you. I've made all kinds of sacrifices for you. You owe me. Do you ever do that? Do you ever feel sort of, you look at God and you go, God, you owe me. You owe to get me out of this problem. You owe to give me a good life. You owe to give me this person that I want to marry. And you test God. You say, if you really love me, you'd do this. And God says, I don't need to do that for you to know that I love you. You do that. And the final one is maybe the most troubling to me. I'm horribly susceptible to following other gods that promise an easier life for me. And you go, what? You're a pastor. You follow other gods. Well, you know, not talking about Buddha or anything like that. But you know what? I follow the god of greed at times. That god can wrap his hands around my heart. And he promises me nice things and financial security. And I buy into it. And I go, that's such an easier road than the road you want me to go, God. I want to follow that God. Or the God of lust who promises me excitement and escape. I just go, that's so appealing, so enticing to me. Or I follow the God of fame who promises me recognition and prestige. Who's the God you follow? Who's the God that's most enticing to you, that gives you, promises you this easy road, all the glory, none of the suffering? And you'll see, we've got the same problem. So what's the solution? And both Tim and Lo have spoken about it. What was the weapon that Jesus used against Satan in the temptation? What did he do? He quoted scripture. He quoted the Bible. He knew the Bible. 
The Bible gave him protection from me. And I want to close by just echoing what Tim and Lowe said. 2011 can be a whole different year for you, depending on how seriously you take reading the Bible, studying the Bible, getting the Bible into you. I really want to encourage you, if you've never done it, if you've never sat down and said, I'm going to read the Bible every day, or I'm going to really make a focus of understanding this book and getting it into my life, it is the best way to deal with the temptations that we face. It's called the sword of the Spirit. It protects you. It alerts you. It strengthens you. And I would love, as we enter into Huntington Beach, that we have 100 on-fire people for God and for the mission he's called us to that are saturated with God's Word, that have God's Word just pouring through us. And I want to challenge you. You know, it's up to you. Read it for five or ten minutes a day, maybe longer. Study it. Get it into you. It will make a huge difference. But it's your decision, right? That's your decision. Your decision on whether you're going to do something like that. Let me pray for you. And pray for me. Lord, we enter 2011, and there's all kinds of things. We have no idea. We have no idea what the future holds in many ways. We do know this. We will be tempted. I know I will be tempted. I am tempted. Everyone in this room will be. Lord, we pray that you would give us a sensitivity to be aware when we're being tempted. Lord, that you would give us power to stand up to it and to make the right decision. Lord, give us the discipline to read your word, to get your word into us, to change us from the inside out. And we are so grateful that you give us the Bible to help us in our life. We as a people stand before you and we recognize that you are our God. We will not ignore you. We will not test you. We will not serve other gods and replace you. You are our God and we are your people. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariner's, visit www.marinerschurch.org.